Hey guys, welcome to the Scripture Study Project, our podcast that gives you a fresh and faithful perspective of the Scriptures that we hope will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you are learning to others. I am Zach Horton, and this is my wife, Krista. See, I did the pause like you do the pause. You always do the pause. This, this is, is my, my... You just said, this is my... This is my... So I wasn't sure if I should Because well, you always do the pause. Like, this is my husband, Oh, Zach, that's right. So I right. was doing the pause. This is wife and co-host, Krista Horton. There you go. Yeah. There we go. Thanks. We're excited to be here. Like we say every week, I need a different word. But excited is getting old. Excited works. We are excited. This is episode 27. We're in Acts chapter 6 through 9. And uh, we're up and going in this unfolding story of the Acts of the Apostles and the church growing, and we're excited to study this week. So um, before we do, our doctrine that we wanted to dive into, again, we're able to pull from the text of uh, our study this week. Um, The doctrine is priesthood and priesthood keys. And I actually think this is one that, uh, of all of the quote-unquote basic doctrines of the church, one that we probably, at least in my humble opinion, misunderstand or misquote the most. Mm. Um, I, You hear it in, in as simple of things as um, over the pulpit we'd like to thank the priesthood for blessing the sacrament. Or... It was, you know, that men have the priesthood or that women don't have the priesthood. And there's a whole bunch of questions and confusion and contradictions and uh, even arguments over the discussion, over the doctrines of priesthood and priesthood keys. Um, In this story we're studying this week, there's the individual Simon, who before his conversion is one that is kind of a self-proclaimed sorcerer who has quote-unquote great power. Um, Some even think that he's God himself or God's messenger on earth. However, when he sees apostles doing miracles through priesthood power, he's mesmerized by it. He converts, quote-unquote, to the church and then asks them to give him that same power. And Peter denounces him. And he says a really interesting thing. Uh, This is in Acts chapter 8, verse 18, when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Now, I've often wondered, that could be just a simple misunderstanding, that Peter could say, hey, come on, you don't pay money for this. There's a proper way of going through it. And so we'll have the interview and then we'll give you the priesthood, etc. But I think there's something deeper here that Peter's getting at in his response. Verse 20, Peter said unto him, thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. That um, condemnation, thy heart is not right before God, um, in conjunction with Peter's description of priesthood as a gift from God, I think helps us really understand what the priesthood is. Um, You have probably been in discussions or lessons before where priesthood has been defined accurately as the power of God. And I would put a period right there. 
priesthood is the power of God. Yes, it's the power of God delegated to uh, mortals to do God's work on earth. You can add on anything you want to it. But at its core, the priesthood is simply the power of God. It's the power by which he does what he does. It's the power by which Jesus did what he did on the earth. Um, But even Jesus noted that that power that he had came from God. Even Jesus deflected praise. And so we run into problems with this this, when we start saying things like, well, in our church, men have the priesthood and women don't have the priesthood. If Jesus himself would not claim ownership of that power, it seems a little bit errant that we should in any way claim ownership for it too. So by that, men don't have the priesthood. I have no power in and of myself to do anything. Bless the sacrament, pass the sacrament, perform any kind of an ordinance. In that, I am just like my sisters in the church and that they don't have the priesthood. God does allow men and women to use that priesthood under priesthood keys, which are the governing authority of that priesthood, and so prophets, apostles, stake presidents, bishops, seventies, etc., hold keys or are delegated keys that direct the use of God's power. But that power comes from God. It's delegated to men and women to perform necessary um, actions on earth. And so, of course, a very obvious example is when a priest kneels down and blesses the sacrament. It is God's power that that priest is calling upon to bless the sacrament. But when a mother prays for her children to be healed or when her children to be comforted, whose, what power is it that causes that healing or that comfort? It's the priesthood. It's God's power. Of course, she accesses it in a different way, and there are many different ways that God's power is used or accessed on earth, but it's all his power. And so the simplest definition of the priesthood is it's God's power. Priesthood keys is the authority to govern the use of that power, all of it given by God himself. And I think there's been really some great discussion going on over the past couple years and um, some general conference addresses on this subject that I think have really kind of maybe changed that culture, that language culture that we that we have used to describe the priesthood yeah. that I think has been really helpful. And in fact, I thought we'll put a few of those in our show notes, some of those that may be helpful if that's a tangent you want to go off and study or listen to some some great resources on. Yeah, I think it was President Oaks that first kind of yeah that was that the one off. I He's was talked a couple of times about it. But there's been a couple Ensign articles and things. So yeah. Okay, with that in mind, uh, here's our study this week. Last week we titled the episode "Apostle," and it was all about these apostles. The whole point of the study in Acts chapters one through five. Um, was to show that Jesus Christ began his work in the Gospel of Luke, but continued his work through apostles who preached and teached, teached, preached and taught. Didn't rhyme if you say taught. <laughs> preached and teached. That, you can uh, say that. Preached and teached and healed <laughs> uh, like Jesus did. Well, in chapter 6, we run into um, kind of an interesting dilemma that the apostles now face. This is uh, verse 2. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, 
It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parnamis, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. Um, in these chapters, starting in chapter 6 through chapter 9, uh, Luke, again, who's the author of the book of Acts of the Apostles, is power-loading the chapters with average, normal, and even sometimes downright despicable men and women who are called upon to assist the apostles in this grand work of teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, and healing and helping the world. And so what we want to do is look at some of these individuals, not all of them, but some of them, and just ask the very simple question, what can we learn from these individuals, some of the seven and some of the others, um, that we can learn for us as we, in our responsibilities, try and sustain prophets and apostles in preaching and teaching the gospel and healing and helping the world? Well, Zach, I think is the beginning. I think this is kind of something that you already mentioned as they were choosing these people here they were choosing these seven, um, and it mentions in verse 3, full of the Spirit and wisdom. So these are people that were moved upon by the Holy Spirit in those last chapters that we talked about last week, and were some of these early disciples that were continuing to be full of the Spirit. And I really love that as we move into these chapters and we see more and more people and get to hear more of these stories of them coming to be a, become a disciple, that we get to see, like we talked about last week, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, moving the work along. That Jesus is again at work um, among these people. And introducing first, I mean, the first person that we get to meet is Stephen. And in verse, starting in verse 5, they say, that as they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And verse 8, now Stephen full of grace and power. So this is someone that was was ready, was willing and ready to serve and to start teaching. And we get to learn about him in verse 7. We hear him preaching and we get to um, introduce to him as the first martyr for, for the cause. Yeah. And I think this is... I mean, this is a theme that Luke has throughout the entire book of Acts of the Apostles. We mentioned this last week, but uh, he wants to prove that Christianity is far from dead, that it's only just beginning. And so he's showing that uh, we've got, you know, in the beginning, Jesus calls Peter a fisherman to be this great apostle. And now Peter, the great apostle, uh, is calling others to do the same thing and it's spreading and they're going in in different places in different directions and Philip's going to be in Samaria and they're going to start teaching in, in Gentile countries and nations and um, and so I think Luke really wants to show that this power and grace or the Holy Ghost or the power of God or whatever word is used that God is at the helm and he's continuing to drive his church through the use of his power. Which is I think really one of the reasons that Acts can be such a great study, and I've really enjoyed this as we've read through these chapters in this light and just have been able to liken that to our own experiences. And, you know, we see another one of those stories in 
chapter 8, verse 26. And this time it says an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. So here we get to see another disciple, Philip. And I don't know, what do you think? Do you think that the angel of the Lord is something different than the Holy Spirit? Because most often, I can't. I, I think yeah. we've seen both. That gets confusing in Scripture. They use authors will use the term synonymously or in different ways, and then translators will use it differently. So yeah, but anyway, some so manifestation can... of God's power or the Holy Ghost is coming to Philip and right. giving him this mission. Of, which is kind of fun to think about too, as we, like I said, as we liken it to ourselves and mm-hmm. to really believe that these are things that we can can experience as well. So anyway, chapter 8, verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he is told that he needs to go find this person to teach. He finds the Ethiopian or the eunuch and he's already reading in the scriptures. And so in verse 34, um, the eunuch asks Philip, who is the prophet saying this about? So what is the scripture saying? And I love that, of course, he's talking about scripture here. Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. Um, and how often did we see Jesus teaching in that same way that, that he would use scripture to teach? I think there's a lot of teaching principles we can learn from this too. Um, meeting someone where they're at, being with where they are, there he had the eunuch had a question and Philip answered that question first with that scripture and then went on um, and maybe that's a great way to for us to be teaching with the spirit if that's something that we're going for is to um, use the same method that that Philip used I like that a lot I was just going to ask you what lessons do we learn or do you think you learn from Stephen and from Philip but that's probably one of them is using the scriptures to teach um, well definitely the scriptures. And the way that we see Philip teaching um, from the scriptures and being moved upon by the Spirit. But I think the thing that I learned the most is just the way that they've responded to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. They hear it, they do it, and things happen and things are moving. And they're they're feeling a part of this motion of, of what Jesus Christ wants them to do. And then we also coming up here in... This next story is the story of Ananias, that we see the same thing happening. And I I love the way that he responds to something that the Spirit is telling him that's that's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, I I was uh, just listening to, was it Elder Bednar's talk on meekness? I can't remember which conference, but where he talks about meekness being righteous. Part of meekness is being righteously responsive. And he gives examples of people that were asked to do something difficult and they did it without really giving too much thought to the consequences. And I think for me, at least, I, I tend to overanalyze anything that I'm asked to do. And sometimes I'm, well, I'm currently working on developing that character trait of meekness, being a little bit more righteously responsive to things that are requested of me and just going and doing and trusting that the Spirit is guiding those goings and doings. Well, the stories that I was looking at, you were looking at the, you were a good cop, you were looking at Stephen and Philip, and I was looking at kind of the, the bad examples. Um, I talked about Simon already a little bit. Simon is woven in the story of Philip. Philip's introduced in the beginning of chapter 8, then 
Luke, the narrator, jumps to the story of Simon, and then he jumps back to the story of Philip. Whenever gospel writers, or whenever authors, any kind of scriptural authors do that, you can't help but think that there's some intention there. I think Luke wants you to read the story of Philip and Simon together. He wants you to see Philip's humble, righteous responsiveness, and he wants you to see Simon's greed and his desire for power. In a similar vein, the story of Stephen and Saul, who will be Paul, are interwoven. Now, spoiler alert, the whole point of the book of Acts, as we've mentioned, is proving that Jesus Christ is working and growing his church. But the second point that's pretty close is Luke loves Paul. Uh, He's a missionary companion of Paul, and most of the book of the Acts of the Apostles is the Acts of one Apostle the Apostle Paul, and it's where he goes and teaches and preaches and all of his whole story. And Luke introduces him by weaving his story together with Stephen's story. So as these people are stoning Stephen, Luke makes very special effort to draw your attention to the fact that they are laying their coats at the feet of Saul. And then he goes on to talk about everything that Saul does as a persecutor of Christians. He's essentially the uh, rounder upper of Christians he gathers them. He that's a bad word. <laughs> I was gonna say the second made up word by back in the no, keep going. Keep that going. was a good one. Yeah, rounder upper. Go. I'm I actually kind of like it because I'm usually the one that makes up words. This is kind of cool. Okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> so Saul's story is famous, and you'll read it as you study. He's of course, uh, stopped by the Savior himself. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Um, Saul stops, he falls into, uh, uh, falls blind, later on will be healed by Ananias and becomes this great missionary. In fact, I've heard people say that, of course, Christ um, is the author of Christianity, but um, if Christ, oh, what's the, what's the analogy? If Christ planted the seed, um, Paul's the one that spread the garden, that tilled the garden. Uh, Christianity has a lot to do with Paul. He's the one that spreads this message to Gentile nations and to kings. And um, his, of course, epistles that are coming up are hugely important in the in the development of Christian doctrine and Christian ideas. And so Paul is huge. I love, I love Stephen and I love Philip. In the same way that I love Nephi and Captain Moroni from the Book of Mormon, they are just perfect examples of righteousness, of stalwart faith, um, of devotion to a cause, of being filled with grace and truth and all things wonderful. However, if I'm honest, they're kind of frustrating stories because I'm not Stephen and I'm not Philip and I'm not Nephi and I'm not Captain Moroni. And I used to get kind of down on myself that I wasn't like these great heroes in the scriptures until I started to realize that the Stevens and the Phillips are the exception. They're not the rule. Uh, You look at the Book of Mormon. Mormon takes the biggest book of all of the books, 63 chapters, the Book of Alma, to focus on the story of, quote, the most vilest of sinners, Alma and the sons of Mosiah. He takes the whole, almost the whole book to focus on that. Mormon loves the story. He could have chosen so many other stories from the thousand-year Nephite history, and yet he chooses that one story. Why? Because that's the true story 
of, of Christianity, of conversion. Well, in a similar vein, Luke wants you to focus on the story of Saul. Of course, it's great that someone as awesome as Stephen and Philip can be filled with the Holy Ghost, can be filled with the Spirit, and go on and preach and teach and do incredible things. But isn't it an even more incredible miracle that Jesus Christ can take someone like Saul and convert him and make him, as he says to Ananias in chapter, is it chapter 8 or mm-hmm. chapter 9, verse chapter 15? Nine. A chosen vessel. I love the phrase chosen vessel because Jesus Christ does the choosing. That's the miracle of the whole story. Uh, Luke says that Stephen and Philip were chosen by the multitude, by the people, and they were great choices. Paul was not chosen by the multitude. He was the last choice they would have ever thought of choosing. He was chosen by Jesus Christ. And I love the idea that as we're reading scriptures, as you're reading scriptures, as you're listening to this story right now and thinking, boy, Stephen sounds great and Philip sounds great and I'll never be like them, that Luke's response to you is, great, because Jesus Christ can choose you even if you are like Saul. And you're not, but someone as bad as Saul can be a chosen vessel. And if that can happen, if an Alma the Younger and if a Saul can be chosen to be incredible missionaries and do great good in the kingdom, and so can you. And I love that message. And so the lesson I take from, from these stories is that um, God uses the weak things of the world. It's a 14-year-old Joseph Smith. It's a 14-year-old Samuel the prophet in the Old Testament. It's Moses who can't speak very well. It's Peter who's just a fisherman. It's Saul who's a persecutor of Christians. It's Alma the Younger who's the vilest of sinners. It's those people that God chooses most often to move his work forward. So if you're feeling kind of weak, or you're feeling kind of sinful, or if you're feeling kind of bad, good. Because you're probably just on the verge, or maybe already have been chosen by Jesus Christ to do great things. But isn't it great that we have both sides of those stories? I mean, sometimes we can read those stories of the Captain Moroni's and the Nephi's and and the Stevens and say... Well, that's definitely not me. But maybe we can't identify also with that complete opposite side. But I think what's so fun is to recognize and see that all of these stories, all of these different people, these different personalities, and the way that they um, come to feel the Spirit, come to follow the Spirit, and to act upon those things, and what happens when they do that. And that that's something that we can all experience. So if you're listening and you're listening the way that you should or, or reading the scriptures the way that you should, you might find some things about Stephen that that you can connect to or some things about Philip that you can connect to or some things about the Ethiopian or about Saul or about Lydda or about Tabitha or about anyone else that you're reading. Put yourself in the story and see what, what you can do to sustain and to uh, lift to help and to heal. But remember that God chooses uh, and that those whom he chooses, he empowers to do great and incredible things. This is Acts chapter 9, verse 26. When Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him, 
and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, I love that we can be chosen vessels and speak boldly in the name of Jesus to those that we know and love and even to those that we don't. Thank you so much for listening this week. We hope that this begins a great study for you and that it uh, maybe gives you some ideas for things that you can teach and study uh, with those that you know and love. We will see you next week for our next episode.